Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gell, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. Did you know that 40% of the U.S. population has myopia? It's up 25% from the 70s. It's predicted by 2050 that 50% of the world's population will be myopic. The incidence of myopia in children has doubled in the last 30 years. Today's guest has given this topic a lot of thought. His name is Dr. Alan Glazier. He's the founder and visionary behind ODs on Facebook, the largest online eye care organization. He's been selected by his peers and various publications as one of the top 50 most influential optometrists. In 2017, he was voted Maryland's Optometrist of the Year. He holds seven patents in computer science and ophthalmology. He's been interviewed on numerous TV shows he practices optometry in Rockville, Maryland. Dr. Glazier, thank you for joining me today. Dr. Gelb, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be interviewed by such a uh, esteemed doctor as yourself. <laughs> well, thank you. So let's start with the basics. Explain, what is myopia? So myopia is what's known as a refractive error. There's several refractive errors. Each of them do different things to the way people see light that enters their eye. Myopia makes things that are far away blurry. It's also called nearsightedness because people with myopia see better at near. Now, would you say that myopia is an epidemic? Myopia is definitely an epidemic. The, the rates around the world have been increasing over the past 50 years uh, dramatically, and they're, getting, they're continuing to increase as well. Uh, multiple cultures, uh, some cultures more than others, some genetics more than others, but it's all around, uh, yes, it's an epidemic. Why do you think myopia is increasing at these, at these enormous levels? Uh, it's, 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 well, it's believed that myopia is increasing as a result of the, both genetics uh, and how the environment plays to people with the genetics to develop myopia. Mostly, as our society becomes more of an indoor society, as the work we do becomes more screen-based and held closer to our face. We believe that that causes a, an increase in people who are prone to develop myopia to begin with. How do you think genetics is involved in the development of myopia? Well, we know there are genes for myopia. Many of them have been identified. We don't quite understand how they work together, but we do know in, in clinical practice, for instance, if, if two um, my, myopic or nearsighted parents come in, and that, that it's likely, highly likely, their child will end up myopic. And then the, the odds decrease as the parent, uh, a farsighted parent marries as a nearsight, and a nearsighted parent and things like that. So we know that, that they're tied together. Talk about some of the side effects of myopia and why we want to decrease it as far as, say, cataracts or macular degeneration. Sure. Well, in day-to-day -day life, the, the main side effect is blurry vision. Uh, in in uh, As far as 
side effects um, that, that, happen, that can happen down the road, people with myopia are much more likely to have eye disease as an, as an elderly person. People over the age of 65 who have had myopia of a certain degree when they were younger uh, are more, 40 times more likely to have a certain blinding eye conditions like macular degeneration, cataracts, glaucoma, than people who aren't. And then after a certain point, over a minus five prescription, for every additional minus one they go up when they're young, those, the rates dramatically increase in risk for those diseases as an elderly person. Explain what the word refractive error means and the different types of refractive errors. Sure, to understand refractive errors, let's start with a, a, a perfect eye. Uh, we would call it a perfect eye that, that needed no lenses to see far or near and focused light uh, to a point focus from the front of the eye right to the back of the eye. That's called emetropia, and it means that there is no, essentially means in Latin, no refractive error. Then a, a myopic eye would be an eye where the optics on the front of the eye, the clear dome, the cornea, the lens of the eye, combine to create too strong a focus. So that focus happens in front of the retina, in front of the macula, where, where sharpest vision occurs. Lenses are utilized to bend that light backwards because it's not able to reach the back of the eye, and those are myopic people. And then hyperopic people, also called farsighted people, have light focuses on a virtual focus behind the eye. And if it's small enough, young people aren't generally affected by that, but if large enough, it can blur vision and cause eye strain at near as and in at high enough levels, near and far. And then astigmatism happens where the eye is is shaped something other than perfectly spherical in one of the optical elements or the shape of the back of the eye. And that affects vision at far and near. So if we talk about myopia, what do you think the cause of it is? And why do you think it's increased so much since the 70s? How much do you think digital devices are a cause, kids not playing outside are a cause, that our whole world now seems to be indoors? So the the the, the most common cause is genetic, uh, and the genes can be stimulated by, by, in some people, by the amount of near work we believe they're doing. The, when the eye looks up close, several things happen. The eyes turn in, the closer they look, the, close, the, more they, the closer they look, the more they turn in, and the more that the light focuses on the center of the back of the eye as opposed to the periphery of the back of the eye. When you look away, more of your side vision gets stimulated. When you look close, less of your side vision gets stimulated. There's also a, you, people accommodate when they look up close. They, when they look from far to near, their eye focuses. And for a long time, doctors thought that it was this over, this too much of this focusing that was leading to these higher rates of myopia in our progressively nearer and nearer world that we exist in for school, for devices and things like that. But the latest research suggests that the focus doesn't have as much to do with it, if anything, that it's the depriving the eye of its peripheral vision when you keep your eyes turned in and look at things at closer distances, that is the cause of the increase in myopia in the people who have the genetics to become myopic. If you have the genetics to be, my father was an optometrist and he used to say, if you sat a, a Maya, somebody with the genes for myopia on a desert island and had them look out over the water all the time, many of them would never become myopic because you weren't causing them to converge or focus. Uh, in the same way, the more you do that, the more likely that if you have the genetics that you'll become nearsighted. 
At what age should children have their eyes examined? That's a great question. I, you know, you're, it, it'll differ, and, and there are standards written by the American uh, uh, Optometric Association and by the Ophthalmology Associations. But generally, if, if you, first of all, if your child is born and you suspect a problem, some children, you'll, some people may notice that the pupils whiten one eye, or they might feel like the pupils decentered, like it's closer to the nose in one eye than the other. You can have them, you can have them checked immediately um, by a, usually generally a pediatric ophthalmologist uh, or a pediatric optometrist. And, uh, but if your child's, if parents don't have any significant issues and grandparents and the child seems healthy and is advancing through its education and, and able to, to function in society, uh, generally we like to see children around the age of three or four to assess them. And then if they're normal, every two years after that. Now, if they pass the school screening by the nurse, does that mean they don't need to get their eyes examined? That's a great question. Not at all. It's, a screen, it's called a screening for a reason. It's, it's, the nurse is not a, a trained eye care professional. They're screening it for certain gross things that they might notice that will have them send the child for a, a full eye exam. But, and, and I think it's a fantastic thing that they do that. Uh, nurses provide a tremendous service and they pick up these errors very early, but they can't pick up everything because they're not screening for everything a doctor screens for. Uh, not only these refractive errors, nearsighted, farsighted, astigmatism, but subtle eye turns, uh, things the child isn't, doesn't know or abnormal that they won't report. Uh, that only a, a trained doctor can determine that. Now, finally, we have ways of slowing down myopia. If you could discuss the different ways. Sure. Well, again, myopia is nearsightedness. And, and the eyes that are nearsighted that generally uh, tend to be stretched in a, a, a lengthwise. So an eyeball that is round, roundish and growing in all directions is a healthy eye. An eyeball that's stretching ca can cause, over time, the retina, the thin, light-sensitive tissue on the back of the eye to stretch and thin, and that leads to disease states. So it, for, for, for much of you know, recorded history, people have had ideas on how to slow or stop myop, myopic creep, as I'll call it down. But there were never any real great studies shown. They were always assumptions on what works, what didn't work. Well, in the past 30 years, though, we've learned a lot about what helps. And we've learned that the way we correct people with light, with single vision eyeglasses, with single vision contact lenses, corrects their vision, but they often come back the following year needing a lens change. That, and in a way, the doctors, not through any fault of their own, just because this is the only knowledge we had, we've been feeding that beast. We've actually been focusing light. And while we're focusing it on the center of the eye that needs it focused, the light that falls peripheral to that falls behind the eye, which turns out to be a signal for the eye to grow towards it. And by growing towards it, the eye can only grow in one way, it stretches and creates that thinness. So it's a, it's a catch 22 where we're clearing vision, but we're causing potential problems later in life. What we found later in life. So what we found was that by, by changing the focus of that light peripheral to the center area of vision, by bending it inwards through certain optical tricks, that we're able to dramatically slow down and in some cases halt the progression of myopia. And this is a whole new science of myopia control that has now peer-reviewed research and data to back it up. I want to give you a little analogy, Carrie. This is something I noticed in my clinic before there was real science by myopia control. Parents would come in and they were nearsighted themselves. 
and they would bring their kids in, and they would sit across the exam lane while I checked their child with the, the machine we call a foropter. And, and in their head, they would just assume their child needed a change in their prescription. It was just taken as is that every year, because when they were young, they went through the same thing. Every year they went to the eye doctor, they were a little blurry, they got a new prescription, and every year it went up. So in explaining to people that that, that was the old paradigm, that the paradigm is different now, it's, it's, it's a hard message to get across because everybody has certain expectations and it takes some time in the exam room to get those points across. But now we can offer lenses in, in contact lenses, in glasses even, that, that bend the light in and, and reduce this progression. And, and it's, it's, it's to the child's benefit and it's also to the benefit of public health because we know what's going to happen down the road. So let's start with the treatments to slow down myopia. Let's start with Ortho-K. Explain what that is. Ortho-K is a, is, a, um, is a method of correcting vision where you take a, a medical device that looks like a contact lens and the child, or and adults do this too, but for myopia control, the child applies it to their eye before bed and, and closes their eye. And during the evening, that the shape of the lens gently molds the very front surface of the eye into the shape of a lens that would be used to correct them. In the morning when they take it off, they can see clear without glasses or contacts for a period of time, usually 12 to 16 hours. And in doing that, they're also getting the double benefit of bending that peripheral light into the eye and halting their worsening vision. So it has, it has a double effect. It's, it's great for children who, who get up for swim practice at 4 a.m. or who play soccer and, and need to see and don't want to wear glasses or have a contact in their eye in case they get hit with a ball. It's great for that. And they're getting that even what I feel is even more important benefit of slowing down or stopping in some cases their myopic progression over a period of time. And what's the percentage that it will slow it down about? So this, the studies that, 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 that are accepted now show, have shown in, in scientifically controlled environments, uh, slowing down or stopping at 40-60% at the 40-60% level. In my clinic, I've run a couple of studies on my own patients where I've looked at the data over time and I find it's a little higher than that. But, but generally you want to go with what the real, the real official peer-reviewed studies have shown. And it's as high, usually around 60% a reduction in the amount of change in myopia. How long does it take to get a change? Once you put these special contact lenses on a child's eye, say they start off with say three, minus three. You know, we look at numbers and we use, we use diopters, but one, two, three, say they start off with a three diopter. How long will it take before you see any kind of change? You can see change very quickly with these things. We, we, I like to use the term molding. They're molding the gently and non-permanently the front surface of the eye. The molding can take place in 20 minutes. Um, however, meaningful change uh, can take is overnight in, in the lower numbers, maybe under a minus 3.0. Sorry about my phone. I'm going to, while we talk, turn off the sound on that. Um, meaningful change happens overnight. And as you can, you can often reduce the number down to zero on the first night, but then over, as they wear it more and more, it holds for longer and longer periods of time up to a point. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. I wanna ask you a philosophical question. Uh-oh. 
once we put these contact these contacts on the kid's eyes and it gently reshapes their eye and it gets down to like a zero or close to a zero did you ever think about maybe putting a drop or you think anyone's going to develop like a drop that's going to be able to hold the eye stable so they don't have to keep wearing the contacts but they just use this drop almost like an eye glue so what you're referring to we call cross-linking and uh, cross-linking is is something that's used in certain eye conditions where the cornea, the, 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 the internal part of the cornea, the stroma that's made of collagen is thinning or becoming malshapen. And they, they, in adults, they can apply this cross-linking technology uh, procedure to the eye to stop that thinning or distortion. Orthokeratology is molding the layer above that. It's molding the epithelium, which is not made of collagen. And, and so the drops that they thought might work for cross-linking in Ortho-K to do that, which is a brilliant idea, just don't work. Now, if they found a drop that would, could, the, the, the epithelium, epithelial cells have high levels of lipids in them and some different proteins. And so if they found a drop that could mold lipids and hold them that way, it may be reasonable to expect that a child could wear the Ortho-K for a period of time until they got the refractive correction they want and apply a drop and then it could last for three days or a week or a month or six months. And, and I, I don't know that anyone's working on that for the epithelium, I imagine they are, but they did try this with the cross-linking drops and then they didn't work because they weren't working on the same part of the eye that the ortho-K affected. So take us through cross-linking the procedure. Who would need such a procedure to harden the front surface of their eye? So for the cross-linking, for the clinical uses of cross-linking, or for people who have a, a, a cornea that is thinning through a disease process, usually something called keratoconus, but it's also used for people who have artificially thinned corneas from botched uh, surgeries uh, to correct their vision, refractive surgeries, specifically uh, Lasix, um, uh, PRKs, or uh, um, um, refractive keratectomies and things like that. Uh, that's where they use it now. And what it does, our, our cornea actually naturally cross-links over time as we age. Uh, this is an accelerated type of cross-linking. So it, it's useful in people who haven't fully cross-linked where we want to get some stability and strength to that tissue that's thinning. And how about keratoconus? Explain what keratoconus is and how cross-linking could help somebody that has keratoconus. Keratoconus is a, is a genetic thinning of the cornea. We don't, we're not aware of many environmental influences, although some people who are uh, vigorous eye rubbers can, can have keratoconus. And, and, and as it thins, it, it, puts, it, re it reduces the ability of the patient to see clearly in glasses. They need special contact lenses to see clearly. And if it continues thinning, it can even get to the point where it's so thin that the eye develops a small uh, hole or ulcer and, and, it, and it perforates which would lead to really, really, really uh, big problems in vision, maybe even ultimately blindness if, if left to happen. So this cross-linking was a godsend when it was developed for people to, who were progressing in that direction because we, we know who those people are generally and we can stop it now with those technologies. Explain the procedure of cross-linking. There's a couple different types of cross-linking. Uh, the two broad categories are what are called epi-on and epi-off. And epi refers to the epithelium or the very fine front layer of the eye that the, 
that is molded in or that ortho K we were talking about. And in that procedure, they, they have a drop, uh, I believe they're uh, the riboflavin is one of the active ingredients. And when it's put on the eye, it's absorbed and it's hit with a UV light. It, it cross links or it causes the molecules of collagen in the cornea to become tighter, tighterly, more tight bonded together and not as flexible or loose. And the epi, epithelial off one, they generally scrape, they numb you and gently scrape the epithelium off and that allows the medicine they use for better penetration in the eye. And I believe both of them need the curing with uh, UV light. I'm not 100% on that. Uh, but but that is, uh, th those are relatively new technologies, and they've been a godsend for many, many people. I do know that in surgeries like refractive surgery, like LASIK, things like that, that they've experimented using this to help hold the results in place over time. And that's only helpful if, if there's no more axial expansion, more myopia that, that occurs. Let's talk about soft lenses that a lot of doctors use to slow the progression of myopia. Sure. So, so we talked before about how we mold the eye with the ortho K. When we change the shape of the front of the eye, you get a deeper push in the center of the eye and less of a push peripheral to that. And that causes the light that was falling behind the eye to bend into the eye. And that is what slows down or stops the myopia. Well, soft contact lenses are designed with similar optics to what ortho k creates on the natural eye and that is a soft lens very similar to the soft lenses that most that are that are worn very commonplace throughout the u.s and the world these are put on the eye <coughs> and they bend optics in the same way without bending or, or or molding that very front surface of the eye those are called multifocal soft contact lenses and they're specifically called distance center multifocal soft contacts there is one type that is not a distance center multifocal soft contact that, that uses a similar, uh, a similar technology, a similar theory to work. It's called MySight, and it's relatively new to the market. It's the first product that was FDA approved for myopia control, and it came out very recently. And how does that lens work to slow the myopia down? Well, it, it cre we, all we know for sure, it's, it's proprietary, and they haven't re released exactly what happens uh, uh, but but I you know in, in some optical way they all are are bending light in this favorable manner to reduce the progression of myopia. How about atropine? A lot of doctors are now recommending atropine to slow myopia. Now, atropine is that was the first uh, the first therapy to slow myopia that we 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 saw work and and have peer reviewed studies. Atropine is a, um, a, a a medicine called an alpha agonist, alpha antagonist. Um, anyhow, uh, we believe that it, it acted on the focus mechanism of the eye because we use it in clinic for that. However, they found more recently that it, it that's not why it works, but it does work. And over the years, the higher concentrations of this drop created side effects for children. And they've experimented with lower and lower concentrations that cause less and less side effects. And now we think we've settled on a percent of atropine that doesn't cause side effects for a kid and has a very good effect in reducing or slowing down myopia. We, the, the, the interesting thing about it is we really are not sure exactly how it works, but the cellular, uh, the, the cells in the area of the eye, peripheral to the macula that, that are responsible for the, the elongation of the eye when light isn't focused just right, when that hyperopic defocus occurs, 
some it, it has some action on those cells it's it and and what there's a lot of people trying to figure out exactly what that is it's one of those things where we know it works but we don't know exactly why it works so when we look at children and they come into your office give us an example of a couple of cases of children that have come in and that you've applied one of these techniques and what you have found as far as their myopia progression Sure. A typical, uh, a typical average uh, experience is a two parents who are nearsighted bring their child in for their first eye exam at five or six years old, let's say, and the child is not nearsighted yet. Uh, and, and over the next few years, when I'm watching that, and they have a good eye exam, they don't need glasses or anything. At some point, usually around the age of eight, which is uh, an accepted age that children start to convert, we see their, their prescription numbers heading in that direction. And when they get to the point where they're at either risk of becoming myopic or they are a little bit myopic, that's when we have the conversation with the parents about these methods that we know uh, that we can apply to help slow down or stop the worsening. And I have, these are parents, again, they have that paradigm in their head that this is normal. My kid's going to change. I wear glasses. They're going to wear glasses. And every year we're going to go back to the doctor and need to bump the script up. But that paradigm has changed now and the public is just starting to become aware of this on the smallest levels. This doesn't have to be the case anymore. The children that are just starting to convert and become nearsighted can be slowed down or stopped so they don't have to end up with a prescription that's usually between that of the two parents. So for parents who have very high prescriptions, it's beneficial to the child to pursue or look into some of these options because they're safe, they've been proven in clinic and, and through studies, and they can really benefit that child's health later in their life. What do you think of this? A, both parents are nearsighted. Say they're, you know, we have that scale. We start from zero and we go up one, two, three with little, little uh, segments in, in between. And you have both parents of uh, minus five and they come in, they say, look, I'm concerned about my child. You examine the child. The child is five years old or six years old and they're Plano. Would you consider putting them in if they made a MySight Plano lens, which they don't yet make yet, putting that child in a Plano lens for prevention of myopia? That's a great question, and absolutely yes. So I've done this with, um, with farsighted children uh, of two strongly myopic parents. So the child will come in at an age and we'll, we'll, we'll met, we'll, you know, remember the, the number line from when you were a kid? Like there's a zero mark, and if you look, there's a, you could, Right, minus numbers on one side and plus numbers on the other. The child in the plus is normal. Most children are around plus 7.75 at, at, at when they're farsighted and they're young. And, and, if, and you can see every year, even if they're not nearsighted, you can see that number at every exam going down to plus 50, plus 25, zero. And, and when I have that data, and I have those parents in front of me, I'll show them this number line. I'll say, see, you, you can clearly see where this is headed. Your child is, falls right in, in line with what happens to most children at the, these ages. You have the parents. And we now know how we can slow this down and in some cases keep them right at this mark. And, and I will, in some cases, if the parents are open to it, recommend ortho -K, uh, because we don't have all of the tools in soft lenses. And, and soft lenses are hard for the children to used during the day as well. But yeah, I, I will recommend that sometimes. If I, if I strongly feel that child is gonna come back a minus one the next time I see them. How important is it to use drops when you're examining a child? We call it cycloplegia child. Mm -hmm. To know exactly, to get rid of the accommodation, the focusing, to really know what the exact prescription is. 
on two levels, it's really important. Many parents uh, think about that as dilation also, but cycloplegia is the act of stopping the child's active focus system so you could uh, analyze their true refractive error because they can focus through things and, and you can get false data. It's critical at, at a child's first eye exam at least to do a cycloplegia and, and get the, the actual refractive status of their eye or else there's no way to know what that is. Uh, and, and in some cases, it will reveal really profound refractive error that you, you didn't know was there. So it's critical. And then you can, that also dilates the child eye so you can get a real in-depth view of the sides of their eye where there might be subtle problems or disease even that you can pick up early and maybe even save their eyes. What do you think about the blue filtering lenses that are recommended by a lot of doctors at this point? So filtering blue light is a controversial topic. You'll have doctors who will cite studies that say blue light is damaging to the eye over the long term and can lead to retinal damage. And you'll have doctors who say that's not the case. Blue light is, is visible light that is of small wavelength. And we know that non-visible light with small wavelength, UV, is damaging to the eye. So at a certain point, that wavelength, when it's long enough, becomes non-damaging. But is that in or out of the visual spectrum? And that's been the debate. There are products out there that help reduce the risk that people believe is caused by blue light. And, and as more and more data comes in, it's still controversial, but it, it's looking more and more like there is not a great impact of this light. And one of the reasons it's on the top of everyone's mind now is because computer monitors and, and pads and phones give off blue light. What we do know about blue light is that it does affect sleeping patterns. It affects how your body releases or retains melatonin. And so for people with sleeping problems, using blue light filters in front of the computer can be very helpful for sure. Uh, however, uh, people who like, look, like to look at their phone late at night and things like that and have sleeping challenges. But as far as blue light and damaging the eye, the jury is still out. When, when you're looking, uh, what, uh, how many hours before somebody goes to bed do you recommend that they stop looking at the computer to help with sleep? I, that's a really good question, and I would phrase it in a different way. It's not the amount of hours before you go to bed, but it, it has to be aligned with the circadian cycle. When the sun is setting, we, we, we are human beings. We've evolved to, with certain patterns where when there's less light available in the sky, that's when the, um, the gland, the, the pineal gland, I think it is, right? Or one of those people uh -huh. starts to release the melatonin that helps us go to sleep. So, so if you're going to be looking at the computer in the evening hours uh, and you want to be able to get a good night's rest and this, you are impacted in this way, then it's a good idea to start using it as it's becoming evening time or after the sun goes down, I would say. So I, I don't know that you need to use it hours and hours before, but just kind of, if you if you're still have light going into your eye, artificial light, and it's not light outside, and depending where you are, what time it is, that's a good time to do that, I would say. Now, if you work, but if you work night hours, you're going to have to do it the opposite way because you're going to want to stay up. Now, do you use those filters on your computers, on your cell phone to block the blue light personally? I do not. I do not. So in wrapping up the interview, what are some of the take-homes that you would like parents to know uh, about their children as far as getting their eyes examined about myopia? Sure. Well, I, I, the, the most important message is that the how you think as a parent about myopia, what you experienced as a child going to the eye doctor, 
is has changed. What we know now is very different from what we know then. You don't, your child doesn't have to be in a situation where their vision is getting worse and worse at the same rate it used to. 60% or more, we can use one of these methods to slow that down. And also know that myopia is not just a refractive error. Now we understand there's certain blinding eye conditions that are caused by it that impact your child later in life in the, when they're elderly. And by, by getting ahead on this, by knowing this, and, and, and sl taking action to just not prescribe nor regularly for them, but to use some of these new technologies, you'll be helping your child have a, a better visual outcome later as an adult. And that's the most important message. The other message is to know that this isn't rocket science. We're still using eyeglasses and contact lenses, just different types to achieve this than we've used in the past. And we also know more about the ways we used to recommend. Like many parents will come in and after I examine them, they'll ask me not to give their child the full prescription because they thought, they think that, that, that that's helpful because that is out in society for some reason people believe that. Studies have shown that that actually is more damaging <coughs> in terms of myopic progression, undercorrecting than correcting right on. And there are reasons why that is, but just know that the science that follow the science, follow your doctor's recommendations, and know that undercorrecting isn't good. Correcting on target is good, and using some of these methods can help your child now and in the future. I want to thank Dr. Alan Glazier for joining me today. Dr. Glazier, if somebody wants to find out more about you, how can they do that? So I'm, I'm, uh, you can find out more about me by going to a practice website called youreyesight.com, Y-O-U-R-E-Y-E-S-I-T-E.com. And uh, that's where most of the stuff is about me online. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.